Welcome to Kingdom Builders, where you can learn to live on mission for God. If you want to see more people saved and increase your impact on the kingdom of God, this is the place for you. Every week, we will have guests who are actively living on mission for God, and you will hear practical advice on how you can become better at sharing Jesus with your world. Thank you for joining us for Kingdom Builders. Uh, today, we have a very special guest, uh, Brian Zahn, and uh, he's wrote, wrote a book on when everything is on fire, faith forged from the ashes. And so uh, thank you for joining us today. And uh, so can you tell us maybe what experience did you have that caused you to write this book that you think can help others uh, battle doubt in their life? Yeah, I've got a, I got a story to tell yeah. about that, Matthew. Um, let's see. I got to, I got to decide where to start. Um, well, in 2019, the fall of 2019, my wife Perry and I were walking for the third time the Camino de Santiago. This is a medieval pilgrim route that uh, was quite popular 800 years ago and then has experienced something of a revival over the last 20 years or so. But the traditional route, the most popular, begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port-France, crosses the Pyrenees, and 500 miles later, you arrive in Santiago de Compostela, Spain. So it's a 500-mile walk. Yeah. And we'd done it before and then again, and this was our third time to be walking this Camino. And this is the fall of 2019. Now, when you walk this ancient pilgrim route, it's a little bit like a time machine in that you can feel an earlier epoch. You can understand to a certain extent what it was like to live, let's say, 800 years ago because you're encountering so many of these old monasteries, convents, churches, shrines, that sort of thing all along the way. And as I was walking, I thought, you know, there was a, a time, an earlier time, when faith in God was absolutely dominant within society, and that the social structure as a whole helped to just undergird a certain kind of Christian faith. Now, let me just pause for a moment and say, I'm not overly romantic about the medieval age. I don't, I don't want to go back to it, and we couldn't even if I did want to go back. But right. I'm simply acknowledging the truth that there was a time when it was, I'll just say it like this, easier to believe in God than the time in which we live in here in late modernity. And as I walked, I thought, well, I know people are finding it challenging in the time in which we live to sustain a healthy, vibrant, living Christian faith. And, the, and these that are struggling with maintaining a Christian faith, if I could walk with them, if they could join me for a day or two, as we walk on this Camino, what, are, what might our conversation be like? As I listen to what they're saying, how might I as a pastor 
respond to what they're saying. And so I was thinking about this for about two weeks, on, because when you're walking the Camino, you have lots of time to think. I mean, you're, right. your life is basically just walking every day with everything you need on your back. And so, so you have lots of time to think. And we were 200 miles, two weeks into this long walk. And we arrived at a little hilltop village that we were going to spend the night in called Castro Haris. And I finally said, okay, what would I really want to say? And I sat outside the place where we were staying and I outlined, I gave it the title, When Everything's on Fire. This is October of 2019, When Everything's on Fire. Because it just felt like that. And then I said, well, I would like to talk about these things. And I outlined the 11 chapters and I stuck very close to it. I didn't really start writing it though until sometime into 2020 because you know I had to get back and all these things were happening. And so I'd already given it the title when everything's on fire. And then I started writing in 2020 and then everything was on fire. But anyway, that's, that's, the, that's the background story of how the book at least was conceived. I got you. So you actually had to walk 500 miles? I didn't have to. I got to. Oh, you got to. Okay, you got to. But that's how you walked every mile of it, huh? Every step of the way. Wow. It, it, it's it's right at a million steps. All right. So that's that Holy doesn't mean cow. anything to anybody, but it's it's right at that. Yeah. And uh, so it's uh, yeah, and it, it was just it's just good for. I'll say I'll speak for myself. It's good for my soul, and yeah. it's yeah. Because your life is reduced to a kind of quiet, blessed simplicity. Right. And a lot of the noise is filtered out and life becomes very quiet, contemplative, and simple, at least for a season. It takes us about 40 days to walk that 500 miles. So we're walking about 12, 12 and a half miles a day, something like that. Wow. And yeah, but it's good. I, I love doing that. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think that's a that's a great thing. And, you know, you get away from the distractions of everyday life. You know, I'm, I don't know if you had cell service or if you took your cell phone or anything like that. But uh, it is yeah, good. We do because the phone, I mean, there are some pilgrims on the Camino that are real purists and they don't have a phone. But I'll I'll be honest with you. <laughs> it's hard to not have a phone because right. sometimes I'm trying to make reservations of where we're going to stay. Uh, you know, in yeah, Spanish, right, but, right. you know, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, mean I've, I've, I have, I have flirted with the idea. Would I ever walk it someday? Even without a phone, you know, yeah, uh, maybe who knows? Well, I mean, I think that it's a good lesson in the fact that, you know, if like, you, for example, you took, you know, walk that pilgrimage 500 miles, you know, you take time away to focus on this, to think about it. Um, and, and as people, you know, if, if we could take just a little bit time away mm -hmm, you know, to, mm -hmm. to focus on, you know, God or asking God to, to show us what he wants us, what he wants us to do, because it is amazing. You know, you think about what you want to accomplish in life. And once you start focusing on that, it, it starts to become more, more achievable. And so when we do take time for God, I feel like we we actually see God do more in our life and we wait on him. And so that, that's a good lesson in, in itself. And so uh, I really like the title of your book, When Everything's on Fire, because that is like what it feels like oftentimes. Mm, yeah. uh, 
uh, nowadays, you know, and with uh, the media and, and all that kind of stuff. And so um, what maybe is, is something that we can do to help uh, someone who is leaning towards, you know, uh, an attitude of, of deconstruction of saying, hey, you know what, um, I, I don't really know if I can do this Christian thing anymore. Yeah, I, of course, that's more or less what the whole book's about. <laughs> right, right, right. But uh, where to start? Okay, one of the things I would say is that it's absolutely vitally important to understand what the actual foundation of Christian faith is. Mm-hmm. And it's not what a lot of people think. It's not the, it's not the Bible, per se. It's not... Uh, a certain statement of faith or any of these things as valid and necessary as they are, the foundation is Jesus Christ himself. Faith in not a religion, not all of Christianity, although that comes later, but I'm, I'm laying the foundation here. The foundation is Christ himself, which is communicated to us, not by empirical proofs, but by a revelation from the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's the foundation for our Christian spirit, for our Christian faith, is that the Spirit of God takes initiative and reveals to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And now, when everything's on fire, And when things are now rushing at you and crashing into you that are imperiling certain aspects of your Christian faith, here's a bit of counsel. Focus on Jesus. Let everything else become negotiable. That it may may survive, it may be tweaked, it may be consumed in the flames, I don't know. But, But focus in on the person of Jesus Christ and hold on to that, and then let everything else be perhaps renovated, discussed, negotiated, rethought. That can all happen as long as you still have that one single vital foundation of Jesus Christ himself. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's I mean, I didn't say that perfectly, (laughs) That's well, why I wrote you know, the book to try to get it better, but but I think that's I think that's essential because what happens is sometimes uh, every aspect of belief within within what we call Christianity gets tied together so tightly that if one little, perhaps even relatively minor, uh, issue has to be rethought or perhaps jettisoned, say, well, I don't know, I don't think I believe that anymore. If everything's tied together like that, then you throw out one part and everything goes. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't have to happen. So so I'm, re- I'm reiterating, I'm repeating myself, but this is what I come back to. The foundation for Christian faith is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Stand there, stay there, and let everything else be addressed and dealt with as need be. Well, you know, I, I think about, you know, you talk about the Bible and that sort of thing. I think about uh, a conversation that Jesus had with uh, the Pharisees, you know, mm-hmm. and in in one of this, those verses, he, he tells the Pharisees, you know, you search the scriptures for life, 
but those scriptures point to me where life is found basically you know that's what he was saying yeah. and and so uh i think you have a good point like for me personally you know anybody that i talk to about you know jesus or, or christianity you know like i i really think it's helpful to not address these million different things but just keep it solely focused on jesus and right on then after you know uh, Jesus um, saves them and the Holy Spirit's in their life, you know, he, he can change those things about them. He can, you know, get everything in, in order. And I can't do that. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so I do think that that that's a good point. You know, that if we focus on what is the foundation, what yeah. what's important here, you know, then that, that can see uh, true, true change. And so um, what, what would you say? Because some people, have doubts. I mean, everybody has, doubts. everybody has doubts. Yeah, Some yeah. people tell the truth about their doubts. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, and, and I can rem remember hearing, everybody has them. Right. I mean, I, I remember hearing sermons by, you know, great, you know, faith preachers, you know, you got Adrian Rogers or Billy Graham and, and, and they talk about how they, you know, sure. they had doubts. And, and so, but, but when you look at this, some people have doubts, right. And, yeah. and then they come through on the other side, you know, yeah with a stronger faith, some people have doubts and they get, you know, taken down basically and, and go the opposite direction. So, so what would you say if, if we were like in the middle of this, uh, what are some, what, what are the factors that make us survive our faith survive? And, and what are some actions that, that make it, I guess, implode basically? Yeah, I think we need to have a right attitude toward doubt. And the first thing I'm going to say is, if you are going to be a person of faith, doubt is always a possibility. Faith, yeah. by definition, operates in a world where doubt is possible. If, it, if doubt is not possible, then it's not faith. It's something else. It's, it's something that lies out. It's something other. Right. What we call faith operates within a sea of doubt. It's, it's an island within a sea of doubt. So, Doubt is always a possibility. Secondly, I would say for those that live by faith to some extent, that is that, okay, I'm going to believe these revelatory claims and proclamations concerning Jesus Christ. There will always be moments or seasons or nights of doubt. It happens to everyone. Um, you know, you have the cry of dereliction upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I don't want to get into all the theology of that. Was, was Christ indeed forsaken by God, or might we rather say, certainly that was his experience. His experience was a sense of God forsakenness, and yet he's not because he's raised from the dead. So, even Jesus has the moments of, my God, my God, where are you? you? Why have you forsaken me? We remember after the resurrection, when Jesus is, is commissioning and speaking to his disciples that have gathered in Galilee, it says, and they worshiped him and some doubted. <laughs> yeah, These are people encountering the risen Christ, and yet there's doubts. But what's interesting is, it's sort of just an offhand comment, and some doubted. It's it's almost comes across Matthew like this, and some doubted, but so what? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just part of it. When you think, when you make the mistaken assumption that faith equals absolute certitude, uh, where there must never be any shadow of questioning, much less doubt, uh, you are creating an atmosphere in which doubt can actually become a faith-destroying monster. If you're more honest about it, though, I think most doubts can serve, cannot, most doubts, if they're brought into the daylight, uh, kind of just wither away, or they're, they're uh, nothing, they're like a little annoyance now and then, but it's not a big problem. It's when we pretend that we don't have doubt, and we want to lock it away in a closet and pretend it's not there, and not let it see the light of day, that's when it grows into monstrous forms that can actually be a threat to our faith. So, um, a healthy faith community, by which I mostly mean a church, a healthy faith community helps one another sustain their faith uh, during seasons of doubt. Now, if it's unhealthy, then everybody has to pretend that they never struggle with doubt, and that's not healthy. Uh, And that is a certain phenomenon that has become more common uh, in the age of empiricism, because we then have this wrong-headed approach to faith, and we think it has to be some sort of scientific fact rather than a response to the revelation that God gives us. But Okay, within a community of faith, here's the interesting thing. We don't have to do all of our believing all by ourselves. We sustain and help one another. Uh, one of the unfortunate influences of the enlightenment upon Christian faith, especially in the Protestant world, is that it has become very individualistic. We're all upside, we're all alone upstairs inside our head. I talk about that one yeah. where we have to, we feel like it's my sole responsibility all by myself to sustain my own individual faith. And sometimes that's just too much. Rather, faith is really a community effort as historically understood. You remember that story when Jesus is in Capernaum and he's teaching and they've packed into the house and no one, no one else can get in, but there's this guy that's paralyzed and yet he's got some friends and they want to help him get to Jesus. So they, you know, the famous story, they take him up on the roof and they take apart the roof and they lower him down (laughs) You know, those are some good friends right there. And they lower this guy right down before Jesus while he's teaching. And the the scripture says that when Jesus saw their faith, not not the man's faith that that has the immediate problem, When when he saw their faith, he said to the man that was paralyzed, your sins are forgiven. And then a little bit later, when challenged by the Pharisees, take up your bed and walk. So you see, I think, I think sometimes if we're in a good church, uh, some days we're part of that company of four that bring the one that's having a hard time into the presence of Jesus. Other days we are that one that's mm-hmm. carried by the faith of our four friends. So, um, and maybe, I don't know if I really deal with that as, I know I mention it in the book, uh, I probably, I'm just thinking right now as I talk yeah. with you, I kind of wish I'd put more emphasis on the communal aspect of faith. I think, I think faith, if 
most aspects of faith can be sustained if we can do it in the company of our friends, our believing friends. Uh, most of the time, I think it can be sustained. It becomes much more difficult when we feel like sustaining faith is our own individual responsibility and we have to do it all by ourselves. So those are, those are just some rambling thoughts about, about well, dealing with that and responding to it. That, I mean, that, that's a good point. You know, community is very powerful. You know, I mean, you think about just the aspect of somebody that grows up in church is in this community yeah. that loves Jesus, loves the Bible, you know, everything. And then they go to college, right. And get into a community to where that's not the right. majority belief. And so they start looking at this community and say, well, you know, what's going on here, you know, and, and it's all has to do with that, that community. But, um, I like what you said, you know, it was it, without the faith of this paralytics, uh, friends, I mean, he couldn't right. walk in that room, you know, yeah. I mean, he wasn't getting up and walking. Right. I mean, the faith of his friends was important. And so that is an important factor that yeah. when, when, when your faith is paralyzed, may you have some friends that can yeah. carry you to Jesus. I, I just preached that right there. You know, I can preach a sermon on that right now. In fact, I may, I may have to get done here and write a sermon on that. <laughs> that I, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, and, and I think about, you know, like I heard a story and, and I feel like this shows the importance of what you're talking about of, you know, a faith community. It has to be okay with these questions, you know, uh, with, with these doubts, because if you handle that wrongly, it yeah. can go in the wrong direction. Like I yeah. heard a story about um, there was this kid and it wasn't a very big church, but uh, the, I guess they had these mission magazines, you know, with pictures of starving kids in Africa or something like that. And this little kid, you know, asked the preachers like, man, what uh, if this is true and these kids are starving to death, then where's God? You know, how can he be real? What's the deal with that? And and the pastor of the church just kind of blowed the question off, like, you know, it just, it is what it is. And I mean, so he went the wrong direction, you yeah. know what I'm saying? And I mean, the kid from the story was uh, Steve Jobs, you know? And I yeah. mean, you think about that. What, what if this man who contributed all these amazing technological advancements, right? This, this genius man, what, what if, what if he had been a Christian kingdom minded person, what would we have seen? Right. And, and so I think that's important, you know, the, the power of community like you talk about and, and being there for, you know, your friends yeah. when, when their faith is, is hurting. Yeah, I think this is, this is a very significant pastoral concern. When people come with their doubts, they can't, you can't, they should not be chided. They should not be shamed. Right. They should not be belittled. They should not be ignored. They should be treated with respect. And I think to a certain extent, um, the skill of a pastor really is determined by how well they can help those that are doubting. Yeah. Those that are facing the phenomenon of doubt, which is universal. I mean, everybody will go through those periods. Everyone. I, I mean, literally everyone. Uh, the worth or, the, or the, the, not the worth, but the skill of a pastor, I think, is, is really ascertained. That's the real test. How well can they help people during seasons of doubt? And I don't know that you can, I mean, that comes from experience. It comes from having been through your own dark night of the soul. 
And it comes by truly being pastoral, having a tender heart, having a compassionate heart. Uh, I, the, the very worst response comes from people who are actually afraid of doubt. I mean, I tell you, Matthew, I'm not afraid of doubt. I've, I mean, I've dealt with it. I've encountered it, okay? Right. I want to quote Fyodor Dostoevsky here, who is very, figures very prominently in my book, the great Russian novelist. He says, uh, it is not as some child that I believe in and confess Christ. My Hosanna has passed through an enormous furnace of doubt. And so I think the, the, the worst, this is hard for me to say it like this, I sound mean here, but the worst pastors in helping people in their congregation deal with doubt are those that pretend that they don't have any doubts or haven't dealt with doubt themselves. And actually what they're doing is their own fear. Oh my, what if, what if I lose my faith? What if doubt overtakes me? And so they, they react against that harshly because really what they're doing is manifesting their own fear. Uh, those that have been through seasons of doubt and come through on the other side, like Dostoevsky says, pass through an enormous furnace of doubt. Um, then doubt become you first of all you can be sympathetic and compassionate empathetic toward those that experience this but also doubt sort of is it gets whittled down to size it's not the great monster that it once was mm -hmm. well that that makes sense and um i like how you know obviously there's an intellectual aspect to jesus and, and the gospels you know um but there's also a, a beauty uh, to Christ, you know, and like one, one of the things that I remember hearing from a, from presentation or something like that is just how as, as people, um, you, you can give people facts, yeah. you know, um, and then they don't do anything. Right. But you can True. give them a, a story, you know, so a, a story, a testimony experience, like, and it's like, it, it completely changes the equation. And, and so in, in one chapter, I think it's uh, the one, the day Derrida died. Derrida, um, yeah. Derrida, yeah, Derrida. Um, you know, you talk about the, the beauty of Christ, talking about meeting this uh, young man, you know, going to this cathedral and that type of thing. Could you kind of um, elaborate on, on that, the beauty of Christ and, yeah. and how that yeah. helps us? Sure. So... This is a true story. I mean, I tell people this story and I say it, it's sort of a postmodern metaphor, and it is, but it's actually a true story. This really happens. Sometimes people get, did this really? Yes, this really happened. And it yeah. happened on the day that Jacques Derrida died. Jacques Derrida was a French philosopher, the founder of deconstruction theory, which then is a term that has been applied to a crisis of faith among you know, kind of post-evangelical Christian right, America, right. Uh, but it really has to do with the philosophy of texts, and I won't get into all that, but, uh, but Derrida had died. This would have been in October. I don't remember the exact date, but October 2004, so it's quite a, quite a long while ago, and I was in Paris at the time, and I was teaching and doing some things in Paris, and I had seen that there was going to be a uh, an English-speaking multimedia presentation on the history of Notre Dame Cathedral that evening. And I thought, oh, I, I want to go to that. And so I was staying way up north in Paris near Saint-Denis, 
and I got on the RER train and I rode into the city center and I got there really well too early because I wasn't sure how long it was going to take me to get to Notre Dame and it didn't take me near as long as I thought and so I went across so I had time so I went across the street to the famous English-speaking bookstore called Shakespeare and Company just across the Seine River from Notre Dame Notre Dame's on this little island and uh, so I was browsing around in this English-speaking bookstore, and I found what I wanted. I found a copy of The Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Again, Dostoevsky appears. And uh, I bought it. It cost 12 euros. It's a paperback copy. And it was a very strange and extravagant act on my part. Because, you see, I already had a copy of The Idiot. I had a copy of The Idiot in my hotel room. <laughs> A very nice hardcover, every man's library, silk ribbon, you know, copy. But I thought, well, I, I have enough time. I can read, you know, I'll, I'll have about an hour's worth of time to read here, I guess. And uh, I can knock out an hour. It seems like a very extravagant thing to spend 12 euros on, but it's necessary to the story. And so as I tell the story, the idiot and I, we went to uh, Notre Dame Cathedral sat through the presentation. It was mostly, mostly just on the construction of the cathedral, but still I found it very moving. There was a little bit in the early part of the presentation about how Christianity first came to Gaul or France through Saint-Denis, Saint-Denis in the fourth century or the third century. And I, I found that, that moving and I, it was like an hour long. At the end of it, you know, there's, there was you know, probably 50, I don't know, English speaking, essentially tourists that were there for this. At the end of it, though, I, I was moved, and, and I just I bowed my head in that great cathedral, and I said, God, use me more in this city. Amen. And then the idiot and I left. <laughs> I got on the train, going back to where I'm staying. We went a stop or two. I'm just reading the idiot. You know, just reading it. And went a stop or two, and a young man got on and sat opposite me. I wasn't paying attention to him. And he spoke to me, though. He said, oh, that's an interesting book you're reading there. I said, oh, yeah, the idiot. Dostoevsky, have you read it? He said, I'm reading it right now. I said, ah, what a coincidence. And we began to talk. And uh, he was very intelligent. I mean, that, that was quite apparent. We discussed a little bit Jacques Derrida. We talked about Dostoevsky and things like that. And then I said, well, what are you doing? And he was Asian and his name was you, which makes telling the story very interesting. So you <laughs> was with me. <laughs> on the train in Paris on the day that Derrida died. And uh, I said, well, what are you doing in, 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 uh, in uh, Paris? He said, well, I, I just graduated from university. I'm backpacking across Europe. I said, oh man, that's awesome. I said, what was your degree? And he said, I had two degrees. And I said, all right, wow. this ambitious young man. I said, what were your two degrees? And he said, uh, political science and world history. I said, oh. That's a great combination of degrees, political science, the human attempt at self-governance, world history, the record of our failures. <laughs> and he, he laughed like, yeah, he said, yeah, yeah. And then I asked him, I said, okay, so you're a young man, you know about political science, you know about world history, what's your hope for the world? And I said, he said, oh, I have no hope. Really? I said, that's, you have no hope. He says, no, I have no hope. And then he, he had no idea who I was or what I did. He just said to me, I understand that this is exactly how he said it. This is exact, his exact words. I understand that Dostoevsky was a born-again Christian. Do you know anything about that? 
Wow. <laughs> and I wow. said, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> and I told him the story of how Dostoevsky had grown up in a Christian home and then in his teens had left the faith and became essentially an atheist, was living in, in St. Petersburg as a writer. He was a part of a subversive uh, literary group that, that got found out. They were critical of the czar. They were arrested, put in the St. Peter Paul prison for several months. They were sentenced to execution for treason. They were brought out. Their sentences, I'm telling this to you on the train in Paris on the day that Derrida died. And they were, they were brought out. And the last moment, the czar commuted their sentence from death by firing squad to exile in Siberia for, well, four years prison, four years exile. And this change, and, and, and as, as Dostoevsky was going into prison, a woman handed him a book and it was a copy of the gospels, of the four gospels. And it's the only thing that he had to read for four years. And he read the gospels over and over, especially the gospel of John. And his faith revived, and subsequently, all of his novels thereafter, in one way or another, have are, are a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, I'm telling this to you on the train in Paris. Right. And then you asked me, he said, okay, well, what do you do? And I said, well, you, I'm a pastor. He said, no way. I said, yeah, I am. And then he became serious, and he kind of leaned close to me, and he said, well, since you're a pastor, I'll tell you something. I grew up in a Christian home. But when I was a teenager, I became an atheist, just like Dostoevsky. Um, but today, I went to visit Notre Dame, not to pray, but just to see the architecture. I said, I understand. He said, but when I walked in and I saw the beauty of the place, I, and by the way, it's in The Idiot that we find the phrase from Dostoevsky, beauty will save the world. Hmm. Uh, when I saw the beauty, I just knew there was a God. And I tried to pray and I said, God, I'm sorry that I walked away from you. And, and I, and you was telling this to me, he says, uh, I tried to pray, but I don't believe God heard me. I said, Oh, you, he heard you. <laughs> Cause I just came from there. I just came from Notre Dame and I prayed there too. And God heard you pray and he heard me pray. And he said, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I can answer both prayers at the same <laughs> right, time. Right, and right. So I had to buy this copy of a book I already have. So you would see it and we would talk about Dostoevsky and Derrida and all of this. And by this time he's crying. I said, you, would you like to pray? He said, yes. And I prayed with you. And I thought maybe just a few minutes had gone by, but I prayed with him. And when I said, amen, and opened my eyes, I was at my stop. I said, oh, you, I have to go. And I jumped off the train and whoosh, off he went. And I stood on that platform in Paris and I thought, whew, I, I feel like an angel. <laughs> People ask me, did you get his email? I said, angels don't ask for emails. <laughs> and so, so well, and then, then, so I've told this story for all of these years, right? Because it's, it is a true story, a remarkable story, a beautiful story. And I've told it over yeah. and over. But now it's got an epilogue. Because while writing this book, in April 15th, 2019, Monday of Holy Week, Notre Dame's on fire. And I, and I love Notre Dame. I've been there so many times. And I remember just watching it for hours on my television with tears rolling down my face. 
I mean, this was almost a too accurate metaphor. Here's this church. I want to say it in English, not Notre Dame. I want to say Our Lady. Our Lady's on fire. But what was interesting was the response of Parisians. And Paris, in many ways, is the center of modern Western secularism. And just a Parisian walking with shoulders shrugging indifference past Notre Dame or Our Lady, the church, uh, would yeah. be a pretty accurate picture of where we're at. And yet, when Notre Dame was on fire, no one was celebrating. No one was, you know, hashtag empty the pews, burn it all down. <laughs> People were weeping. And I think there is this instinct that, and I'm playing with metaphor here, but it's one thing to ignore the church and say, I'm done with it. I don't want the church anymore. As long as you know that somehow it's still there. Yeah. But if yeah. you actually see it in peril and go, we could lose this. People have a different reaction. I don't think there are many people who in any serious way actually believe that the world would somehow be better off without the story of Jesus. Right. Without the story of Jesus who heals the sick and forgives the sinner, without the Sermon on the Mount, without the Beatitudes. The church, for all of its flaws and failures and scandals and sins, still is that which maintains a presence of the saving story of Jesus Christ. And the idea that that could be lost, I think most people find very alarming. And let me just finish the story here. So, so I... I I mean, we thought that Notre Dame was going to be lost. And in fact, it turns out it came probably within 20 minutes of being completely lost. What happened was this. Uh, a particular fire company, they wanted them to take hoses up the two bell towers. But this fire company said, no, it's, it's way too dangerous. And another company volunteered, so we'll take the hoses up. And it was, I mean, they were risking their lives, but yeah. I think their thinking was it's worth it. And they risked their lives to take those hoses up. And I've been, I've been up those bell towers. They just go spy around and it's a long way up there. And the only way was for them to pull these big, heavy hoses up these spirals, staircases inside those great towers to fight the fire. Right. And so, so I mean, it's, I, want, I just want to say my aspiration is I want to be one of those kind of firefighters. When, when, when the church is on fire, and I know things are on fire, and I know things are imperiled, I don't want to say I don't care or I'm not going to try. I want to say I'll volunteer. I want to take those hoses up in that tower and do what I can. And to a certain extent, in my own tiny little humble way, not risking much, but still I'm doing what I can. That's what this book is about. This, this is me pulling fire hoses up into Notre Dame and helping to maintain the presence of Christian faith in a time when everything's on fire. Right. Well, and that makes, that makes a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, of sense, you know, and, and it's, it's amazing you know, like just how God orchestrated that, you know, conversation with that young man, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, now, one of the things you talk about is, is finding refuge. And so um, when everything is on fire in our life, you know, how, how can we find refuge? Or how can we help others in our life who are struggling immensely to, to find refuge? 
Well, I, I think this is the task of the church in the time in which we're living. Um, I'll broach upon maybe an aspect of controversy. Uh, America is in the pre is in the midst of tearing itself apart through the culture wars. And if the church just decides it's going to be on one side or another and just continue to participate and even promote, even amplify the culture wars so that Sunday morning just becomes a time of enticing your anger one way or the other, one side or the other, I think eventually most people are going to think, you know, I have better things to do with my Sunday morning than that. And they're right. Uh, so the church needs to be something else. Uh, the, the church gathering on Sunday morning does not need to be a battlefield. We have enough of that. It needs to be a shelter from the storm. It needs to be a, I don't, I, now I don't mean, I don't mean that we slip away into quietism or that we are not engaged with our own times, but rather that it is a place dominated by the ethos of peace. This, these are the first words of Jesus in resurrection. Peace be with you. It's the first word of the new world. Peace be with you. And we know that everything's on fire. We know that there's a lot of anger and vitriol, that there is a kind of cultural war raging outside. Might it not be possible for the church to be something other? That especially when we gather for worship, on the Lord's day, that there's something that you cannot find anywhere else. And if we can become that, become more contemplative. I mean, you don't hear people say this a lot, Pat, but I think in one sense, I want the church to be more quiet. Yeah. More quiet. In a, in a, not in a timid way, not out of timidity, but out of holiness and out of peace. And, and if we can be like that, People, see, I mean, shelter from the storm. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. I've not told this story before. Uh, just the other day, maybe two weeks ago, I don't know the exact dates. I was out for a long walk in the woods, and I knew, I knew that there was a potential for a storm later in the evening. But um, it came earlier, and so I'm, I'm out walking. You know, it's one thing to be in a storm in your hand. It's another thing. I mean, I was, I was, first of all, I got this, I was listening to a book on my phone and I got this alarm goes off and it right. says there's going to be a, a severe thunderstorm in 30 minutes. And I know exactly where I'm at. I'm really about 35 minutes from my car. Like, okay, pick up the pace here. And so now I'm going faster and I'm about 15 minutes from my car and it goes off again. And the siren, I hear sirens going off and it's, tornado warning take shelter i'm like there is no shelter <laughs> i i i don't know what to do except hurry right. uh, and then i you know i mean i didn't perish <laughs> i made i made it back to my car and got yeah. my but still uh if i imagine if i'd run across some sort of shelter if if there there wasn't but if, if there had have been some home out there and someone said here come here quick come in here that's how the church needs to be 
that that the sirens are going off and things are flying around and it's it's dangerous out there and we're saying we have shelter come in here join us mm-hmm. um, not yeah we've already made up our mind and we're taking sides and we're going to throw things in the air too no we have a shelter again i'm just playing around with metaphor here matthew but i think uh, I think I think it's been very difficult for the church to be that they feel like they have to take a side, and it's a failure to understand that Jesus Christ is Lord, and to see His kingdom as potentially present with us, and we can be a part of that right now. And maybe we just need some more humility. Um, I, I wish we would lose in the church world a lot of our change the world rhetoric. We feel like we're supposed to change the world. I think that's too ambitious, and it causes us to go down paths that transform us into ugly partisans. Uh, it's not our job to change the world, which is just a, which is by the way just in the way of saying save the world. It's not our job to save the world. That's the job of Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. Our task is much more humble. Our task is simply to be that part of the world already being changed by Christ. And so let Jesus change the world, save the world. Let us simply be those who are being saved. And and if we as a community are changed enough that we exhibit the kind of peace that we're supposed to have, people will say, it looks to me like you all are a shelter from the storm. Can I join you? Right. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's a great point. And, you know, you look at the new Testament church, one of the most amazing things that about them and it was radical in their time was you had all these people that did not have a lot of things in common, you know, right. the poor, the rich, the merchants, the servants, right. the lepers, like, and they would sit down at the same table together, yeah. right, um, it peacefully and actually love each other, you know, because yeah. of their relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. You know, they made that the number one thing in their lives. And, and I think that, you know, that, that has a big impact if we yeah. take that, you know, um, stance in our, in our Christian the, life. The egalitarian nature of the early church, where everyone, rich and poor, slave, literally, and free, yeah. would come together and call one another brother and sister, that wasn't unusual. That was unheard of. It, right. it just did not exist until then. And it was part of what made the church so both uh, threatening, because it, it threatened the, the very established Roman order, the hierarchy, and also appealing mm-hmm. for, for people that really were, let's stick with what we've been saying, looking for a shelter from the storm, it was appealing to them. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that's a good example that the early church really was something other. That that in this very established order of the Roman Greco-Roman world, you had another way of doing life that was the church. And uh, if our churches just pulled the world's vitriol of polarized partisanship, you know, are you an elephant? Are you a donkey? Are you on the right? Are you on the left? How are we any different in the world? We're not different. We're just we're just the world with a Jesus fish on it, um, and it's pretty cheap. 
if we can be something other where there is love and grace and mercy and acceptance for all in a in an atmosphere of peace that comes from Jesus, the risen Christ himself, I think people will, I'm not everybody, but I think there'll be plenty of people that say, can I, I would like to come into your storm shelter because I'm getting right, death right, out here. Right. <laughs> and, we'll well, and, and, you know, to that point, you know, I think we find that Jesus was a master at giving people shelter that did not agree with him. Yes. You know? um, and, but, keeping his integrity intact you right. know keeping his holiness intact so like maybe how can we do that you know what i'm saying like like what is a way that we when we deal with these people and you know how, how can we get be a place of refuge and shelter you know with people that that are different from us while keeping you know our beliefs intact well that is the question isn't it <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I don't have a pithy little, you know, well, yeah. here's how you do it. One, two, three. Right. But I think at this point, it's enough to know this is our goal. And let's move in that direction. Let's try to, and, and at, the, at the risk of sounding like I'm speaking in cliches, and I don't want to do that. I, I'm just going to say our focus has to increasingly be upon Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And and let all these other extraneous things kind of fall by the wayside. It was the same thing I was saying earlier in our conversation about your own personal faith needs to be founded on Jesus. Well, the same thing in the in the life of the church. Let Jesus be where we agree, where we gather around, the one we come to, the one we believe in, and everything else we hold on to loosely. Mm -hmm. I I don't I I'm. I don't think it's the best witness when churches are, again, I know I'm talking about something that's so controversial and so heated right now, but when everyone in, in one congregation is of virtually the same political idea, opinion, stance, party, et cetera, or if you differ, you got to be quiet about it, that's not healthy. And it happens on, I mean, I don't, I'm not critiquing right or left because both are equally uh, prone to these sorts of things where, where everybody's a liberal Democrat here in this mainline Protestant church here. Everybody is a conservative Republic here in this, you know, uh, evangelical church. I don't, I, that, that, that doesn't look very kingdom to me. And it looks to me like you're just simply using Jesus as sort of a religious cheerleader for your, what, what really is driving. Let me, let me, let me push this a different way. The problem with the Christian right and the Christian left is that Christian gets reduced to adjective duty in service of the all-important political. Now, what really matters is right or left. And Jesus is just trotted out as like a mascot to endorse one side or the other. I think all of that we need to let go of and say, you know what? Jesus is Lord, and, that, and that's enough for us to gather around. And, and your idea about how a particular continental size nation should be governed that's not what we're talking about here right now we're talking about the one who is lord who is the savior of the world who forgives sins and we're going to gather around his name now if you're really committed to your politics right or left you're not going to hear what i'm saying and you're going to come at me with all the reasons bz why you're wrong you're wrong because we have to line up with this 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 and both sides will do it but i think neither side then has actually seen the kingdom 
Because when you see yeah. the kingdom of Christ, you understand hmm, it is not of this world. It's for this world, but it's not of this world. Well, I think, you know, um, when you're talking about wanting people to change, you know, um, a lot of times we want to argue people into change, you know, mm-hmm. argument. And and we try that. I'll try, everybody tries that. You know, we feel like, everybody. hey, if I come up with a great argument, I'm going to, you know, but uh, there was something that you said in your book that somebody said, you know, uh, nobody really, you know, has this life changed by losing an argument. You know what I mean? Like not very often. <laughs> and, and it's true, you yeah. know, and, and, I, and if you really th- drill down on it, I mean, you know, you look at Jesus, who is, you know, God and like the number yeah. one successful person at changing lives. And what did he do, right, to do that? What did he do to get us to change our minds? He died on a cross, you know, yeah. like he loved us. He had compassion for us, you know. And and so, like, uh, I think there's a great lesson in that, you know, and kind of like what you're saying, you know, and, and my experience is we may be right, but, you know, arguing about it isn't really going to do anything for it, yeah. you know. Like, I, I remember seeing this video about this uh, girl there was a roommate with an atheist, you know, and she was a very devout Christian, very, you know, love the Lord. And um, this atheist girl was so confused because she never got a lecture, you know, um, she just lived this lifestyle that was totally against Christianity. But, you know, her roommate that was a Christian never gave her a lecture, never, you know, put her down, never, you know, and when she was real low, you know, the, the Christian girl just pulled out some ice cream and they would eat ice cream together and she would listen to her problems, you know, and, and, th- and over the course of this, like this atheist girl started wondering, like, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus is what I need, you know? And then in the end, the, the girl gets saved, you know, and stuff. And I mean, it was a great true story, you know? And so I, I think that, that there is some truth in that, that if we would focus on Jesus, you know, yeah and compassion and love like we would get a lot farther i like that story in in one sense there's there's moments and they might be most of the time when our task really isn't to talk about jesus but to sort of just be jesus to somebody (laughs) right i mean that's true you know um because it's like i say you know jesus doesn't have an office where you can go shake his hand and make an appointment and ask him you know so we're here we're god's plan so um that's great but uh Well, man, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show today. Thank you, Matthew. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Kingdom Builders, discovering how to live on mission for God. Make sure you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Share this with your friends on Facebook and your social media streams. And also, if you feel led to, to invest in Kingdom Builders by following the link below, which will allow us to continually improve your listening experience and also Part of the proceeds goes to impact missions around the world so you can build the kingdom of God as you listen to the Kingdom Builders podcast. Thank you and have a great week.